0: Welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights Series. I'm Ravi Shrishkandaraja, Executive Director of QIC's Client Solutions and Capital Group, and each week we invite our listeners to Take 10 and get the latest insights from our in-house economics team. Good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr Matthew Peter, and welcome to our final Take 10 for 2021.
1: I can't believe it's uh, the end of the year but we're here. Nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Matthew, so normally in these final episodes, we would do a rundown of what's happened throughout the year and assess all the major events. But let's do this slightly differently and uh, start with our own region and start with China. We've seen a policy being instituted by the Chinese government which really harks back to a previous era and a policy of common prosperity. Now, I can see why that would be popular amongst the greater Chinese population but is this really about instilling or entrenching I should say one party rule in China?
1: Well it's certainly been the narrative of a a number of people I remember you circulated a, a piece on George Soros which sort of pushed that line and Yeah, to some extent, it's been the line that the US Foreign Department's been pushing to some extent as well. I think there are reasons, valid economic reasons, for this pivot as well. I mean, when you look at the the regulatory authorities have been targeting in terms of, you know, the crackdown on, on billionaires and large companies, it's been those large private sector Chinese corporations that are harvesting a lot of economic data, which... If those companies, uh, like Alibaba and Diddy, were to list on the US stock exchange, which of course the authorities stopped, it could you know, compromise the security of Chinese data, and it could compromise the uh, privacy of public citizens in China as well. Now, you don't have to look far to see the same sort of thing in, in the West, where there are concerns, for example, amongst uh, regulators and commentators about things.
0: And, and in Europe?
1: And in Europe as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other issue I'd point out is the uh, need of the Chinese economy to push to its next phase of development. And That really involves shifting beyond uh, reliance of growth on growth of infrastructure spending, investment expenditure, to greater reliance on consumer spending. And they need to push into that new phase if they're to avoid what often happens to emerging markets—that's the so-called middle-income trap. Now. To avoid that, what you need is a strong middle-class income growth to be able to drive the consumer spending that takes you to that next phase of development. And so the increasing or very high levels of income inequality which were um, been emerging in China are often signs that that growth of the middle class is actually under threat.
0: You're listening to Ravi Shrishkandarajan in QIC's Take 10 podcast where our Chief Economist, Dr Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights shaping our investment outlook. And so also we've seen um, a significant uptick in the conversation, I should say uh, almost the debate that's going on with regard to the geopolitical tensions in relation to Taiwan, South China Sea. We've seen skirmishes on China's border with India, what are the implications for the global economy as a result of this ratcheting up?
1: Well, it's certainly the case, isn't it, Ravi, that China's been exercising its uh, political and economic uh, muscle over the last five years or so, and equally the US and the West have been pushing back. My fear is that that pushes us into distinct trading blocks. China has significant clout within our region. For example, uh, 10 Asian countries, the countries closest to us, China annual trade is about six hundred. $85 billion. Uh, the US, on the other hand, is about only about half that. China's also been forging strong economic linkages within the region. It's recently a uh, signatory to the, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which comes into existence on the 1st of January, which the 10 Asian countries are signatories, as well as Australia, but not the US. On the other hand, the US has been pushing ahead uh, with political alliances, um, the AUKUS agreement with uh, the US... Australia and the UK is an example of that. question is which strategy wins, is it the, uh, the submarines or the uh, <laughs> jobs and uh, incomes, that's the question. Uh, my fear is that for a number of our countries in our region that economic pull will be the strongest. Problem for us, uh, I think, in Australia that, that potentially creates is that whilst we we'll probably still be able to uh, export our iron ore and met coal to China over the next five to ten years uh, because of the, uh, the need that China has for that. We may be excluded from exports of other strong export industries like tourism and educational services, particularly to those countries in the Asian region that themselves are very strong growing and with burgeoning middle class.
0: Let's shift our focus to Europe. In Europe, you've seen the retirement of a giant in our times, in Angela Merkel. And if we go across the channel, uh, we've seen the consequences of Brexit and the labor shortages that have occurred there. And then move north in November, the world met uh, with COP26, really focused on a energy transition plan for the world and a focus on net zero emissions. But if I can go across the ditch again, Um, At the same time, we're having an energy crisis in Europe, partly as a result of uh, the fact that the renewable source of energy, being wind, did not blow in the parts of the world where Europeans have their wind farms. How do you see that playing out in 2022 and beyond?
1: Well, it's interesting that you draw attention to that problem of intermittency that the uh, Europeans had with their renewables in the northern hemisphere summer. I think that and the consequences of that are quite important for us and the rest of the world on a number of fronts. And One of them is political actually and you've seen just recently the natural gas prices, futures prices spike again close to their October highs as the German regulators knocked back ratification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany because it wasn't compliant to EU laws. But coming back to your point about the renewables, I mean, what Europe has been very successful at actually is shifting its energy sources towards renewables. So when you look at the distribution of energy sources, uh, Europe's got about 36% coming from imported oil and about 64% coming from other sources, which you've got renewables, coal, natural gas and nuclear. Now, the renewables account for about a quarter of that uh, non-oil energy source. About a fifth is from coal, and a fifth from nuclear, and about 35% is from natural gas. So a really big share coming from renewables, which is great. Except, as you said, when the wind stops blowing in the North Sea, and all of a sudden the intermittency problem exists because of the lack of storage capacity currently for our renewables in general. In other words, the Europeans had their Adelaide 2016 moment. At the same time, by sheer done luck, I suppose, you know, there were high costs in those other sources of energy which saw energy costs increase by 150% in Europe and one of the main causes for inflation in that region. What do we take away from that? Two things. Firstly, whilst we need to push to renewables, we must be cognizant of the limitations that renewables pose to us because of this intermittency problem. So, to avoid those really big spikes, potential spikes in uh, prices or blackouts, we still need for some time to have uh, access to alternative sources of energy production, which inevitably will be things like natural gas in the, in the interim until we get the technology for battery storage or hydrogen happening. The second point I'd make is that it, it showed the fragility or the exposure that Many parts of the world, Europe, for example, have two uh, the suppliers of fossil fuels, Mm. like Russia Russia. and like OPEC. Mm. And both of those regions can actually be manipulating the price, not only for economic advantage, but also political advantage, which we're seeing play out potentially now in Russia. So going forward, that shift towards renewables to get net zero emissions happening by 2050, you know, to deliver on some of those uh, COP26 programs, it's going to require a navigation between the speed at which you go to renewables and the speed at which you get rid of the fossil fuels completely out of the
0: grid. Yeah. So an inflationary story as it relates to energy in Europe, but also an inflationary story when we turn to uh, North America. You're listening to Ravi Shrishkandaraja in QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights shaping our investment outlook. So let's move to the US, Matthew, and start of the year, Biden presidency, but that shock to the system, Jan six, the storming of Capitol Hill, watershed moment in the US, really, How's that going to play out throughout the Biden presidency? How has he performed through 2021? And where are we at when it comes to some of the programs that he's put in place? Yeah, well, it's interesting that he take us
1: right back to January the 6th, right back to the start. I mean, that at the moment, obviously, there's proceedings going ahead in, uh, in Congress about what happened. But the rest of the world, including Australia, we've sort of forgotten about it a bit. But I think you're right that the... It was a watershed moment, and that storming of the Capitol Hill was a step too far for many Americans, including many Republicans, and actually you saw it expressed in Biden's net approval rating in the first few months of his uh, presidency, which were like a net 16 percentage points, you know, very strong. When you consider that he only won the election by about 4 percentage points, right? And, and I think what it did for him in that period was enable him to galvanise the progressives and the moderates within the Democratic Party and get the American Rescue Plan, that $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus package, over the line in his first uh, months of presidency. I think we are seeing now, though, as you sort of alluded to, uh, like a legacy of that package in, in two spheres. One is in inflation, So it turned out that $1.9 trillion worth of fiscal stimulus, which was really a a big, sugar-hit handouts to the household sector, proved to be way too much than than what was required at the time. And it's part of the reason that the US is experiencing high levels of inflation at the moment. It had another legacy um, effect, which wasn't so obvious at the time. And that was the nature of those handouts, a lot of them were uh, enabling people to remain unemployed without losing an income, effectively. It meant that they didn't come back to work once um, COVID passed, as long as they were getting the handouts. Mm-hmm. So you saw this collapse in, in participation rates and a fall in the unemployment rate in tight labour markets, mm-hmm. even though the level of employment in the US at the moment is still $3 trillion uh, three, three, 3 million I was getting <laughs> the trillion <laughs> billion, three million workers less than what it was prior to COVID. So they're, they're two sort of legacies there that have really impacted the inflation outlook that's, that we see in the US at the moment. But the final legacy is another difficult one, another negative one actually, and that is on the back of such a large package, its inflationary impact and the deterioration in public finances that it caused in the US, it's made the Build Back Better Act that Biden's been trying to push through, which has a greater emphasis around uh, productivity enhancing and social addressing social issues. It's, having, it's, it's, it's really retarded its passage. So Biden hasn't been able to galvanise the Democratic progressives and moderates in the same way as he was, Uh, originally for the Biden American Rescue Plan, and that really puts at risk a set of uh, policies which would probably deliver a lot more sustained, longer-term benefit for the American economy than what the uh, American Rescue Plan did.
0: So, Matthew, we've gone to three continents, Asia, Europe, North America. We haven't mentioned the two great continents of South America and Africa. We might have to get to those at a future Take 10 in 2022. But we've been around the world and we haven't mentioned COVID, notwithstanding Omicron and the rapid spread of that variant around the world, albeit with lower hospitalisation rates as it stands. Am I right to feel a little bit optimistic that we're closer to the end of the pandemic than we were maybe a year ago? By definition, I guess we are. But what, what do you think?
1: Well, the Development and distribution globally of uh, vaccines, in my opinion, is one of the greatest scientific achievements in the history of mankind, and it's certainly been responsible for us being able to get on top in terms of the fight against COVID and the reduced uh, hospitalisation rates that have said keeping the economy open. Omicron. We don't know enough about it yet to really be definitive. I know as much as you know, as everybody else knows. and <laughs> uh, We've all become experts in COVID over the last year or, or so. But at the moment, you're right, the hospitalisation rates look low and it looks promising from that perspective. I th- believe we still must remain vigilant. We're opening our borders now as, and, and case rates will rise. We need to be mindful uh, in terms of social distancing as that's occurring. While we're still waiting to see how things pan out. We need to vaccinate, and we need to be vigilant uh, when we can't. Social distance, probably I would imagine, mask wearing will come back. If that optimistic view pans out, or that the view that really is the uh, central view amongst most scientists at the moment too, the outlook for the Australian economy and the global economy for that matter is very strong. In Australia, we've got very strong uh, consumer confidence. We've got strong business confidence, strong balance sheets both in the household sector as well as good balance sheets in, in private industry. We should be able to push forward with a continuation of strong growth, above trend growth for the 2022. We're forecasting an excess of 4% growth which is well over a percentage point higher than our trend growth rate and we'll see us recover our pre-COVID levels which we momentarily got to before the last lockdown and pushed back towards where we were prior to COVID.
0: Thank you for joining me Matthew but um, it sounds like lots of bright spots in the global economy but the punch bowl was obviously well and truly offered up and uh, perhaps we weren't partying but uh, potentially drinking our sorrows away and watch out for inflation in places like Western Europe and North America as a result